Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Aaron Coulte and I'm the news editor at Resident Advisor. Our guest this week is John Hassel. Anyone with an interest in ambient or experimental music will likely have heard of John Hassel. Since the 1970s he's been putting out records that transport listeners to imaginary worlds. Hassel uses the phrase fourth world to describe his music an East meets West fusion that's often marked by his singular trumpet playing and evocative track titles. When he visited London recently, we took the opportunity to discuss his upbringing in Memphis, his years studying under Stockhausen, his complex relationship with Brian Eno, and a whole lot more. You can find our full archive of exchanges on resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. An exchange with John Hassel, up next. version of your 1990 album City Works of Fiction was re-released last year. That record roughly marks the halfway point of your career today. How do you feel that album sits in your in your catalogue 25 years on? I don't know whether I can speak about catalogue except I mean it, it if in fact excitement uh, amazing musicians um, one of whom, unfortunately, the guitarist Greg Aragine has uh, passed. It's a big landmark for for me, and and I think that the although it could have been, I was was speaking about this with uh, Matthew Jones at Warp um, yesterday about the possibility that we could have done a, a just another release, but making the package, which is kind of Warp's one of Warp's trademarks, is to be able to to uh, bundle things together and do something more than just another release. But perhaps it actually got, it might have gotten more attention because there's so much, the three CDs cover such big territory, one of the territories being a live performance with that band and, and a performance in New York in which Brian, you know, was mixing. And the other being a, a sort of creative um, mixture of, um, what is the word, interfiling, or, you know, there's another better word than that, but uh, outtakes that I'd, I'd, we'd done this, everything that we did was being recorded on DAT, and, and thank God, you know, I mean, taking care of, I mean, and as far as like, so up on the wall should, should be like, you know, take notes, you know, <laughs> don't, don't let things go by without having some sort of a footprint uh, that you can you can trace backwards. And so I found so many nice things. I may be going beyond the premise of your question, but um, I found so many wonderful things in the studio outtakes. And Greg Aragine, the guitarist I mentioned before, was a was a, an incredible. He could have been Robin. He could have been Robin Williams in terms of this, his ability to like, you know, do the do comedy. And um, so it was a, just an, an amazing musician. So to, to hear those, to go back and hear those kinds, of, those ghosts, so to speak, in the studio was a was a terrific thing. But um, and and it's just a, a, a I don't have exactly a, a from the mountain perspective on on things. Um, this happened when was that? Twenty years ago? 20, you know, about twenty years and. I just, you know, it sounds fresh. Sounds fresh to me, and uh, very, very fresh to me. And I'm, I'm. It makes me ask, what am I doing now? You know. 
in terms of those two uh, bonus discs you mentioned, um, the live performance and the other one with um, some outtakes and remixes, mm-hmm. how involved were you in that process putting together the the remixes that came through? Oh, very. There were, I think, mm, something like 30 or 40 dats, and those are all, all I think they're 90 minutes each. So a lot of headphone work and combing through uh, and trying to find things that were not on the original and and things that were not. Uh, it's These were just kind of like offhand things, the things that would happen between takes, which is often the most interesting thing. You know, I mean, I always enjoy uh, outtake uh, productions where, or, you know, what happens, or, or sometimes in movies, right, when they do the... When they they over the credits or in the credits or beginning credits, there's some sort of uh, you know live funny stuff going on. Those are always more interesting in a way than the than the film. But anyway, so those were I was deeply involved in in uh, finding those things and, uh, and and trying to make some you know take the best of them. Last year, you also were invited by Carl Craig and and Moritz von Oswald to work on some music with them in Detroit. Mm-hmm. What was that like? It was great to meet those guys. I mean, Carl had had been in touch with me before, actually way back. I mean, he had a there's a record I did in '83 called Akat Darbari Java, which was sort of made of those knitted those three elements like Akka, pygmies, uh, Darbari, the Indian raga, Java, the gamelan, and and uh, I it's one of the sort of landmark records I think for. Uh, for the world, the mixture of world elements in a, in a way that's not simply a layer cake of, of elements, but uh, it's something that actually merges merges things in a way that thought of it as being like the ethnic music of a planet that doesn't exist or something like that. He'd heard that and he had uh, called and I actually didn't know who he was at that, that time and um, wasn't in touch with the, the DJ burgeoning DJ thing at that time and so I just you know I was I thought it was interesting but I I didn't see much value in departing for wherever I was at the time so it was really cool to get back to I mean to to see him and see what he did and what what part he played in the in the uh, electronica world DJ world and um and and Moritz was a, a sort of new um, to me, although I know he has you know a deep uh, history. And uh, I remember, let's see, I, think, I wish I could think of the the sort of hit uh, that that uh, that he had that was incredibly impressive to me. It was just the best the best electronic I'd heard ever. So that was really cool to have to be together. I unfortunately the real story is that I was suffering from. I just had an uh, an operation, and I had sounds like a codger story, but I mean, I'm just <laughs> I, it was the first time after a lifetime of having no problems, never being in the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. This thing came up, so I was actually on the plane with tubes and running into my pocket with you know to collect off off running liquid, and that was so it kind of put a put a little spin on the on the experience. And then I, so I was taking antibiotics uh, for that, and, and they gave me the wrong antibiotics. So I actually had a reaction to that when, uh, and made my lips swell. So I couldn't play, uh, basically. I couldn't play trumpet. So, so it was just a matter of like being, uh, sort of getting our, our feet wet. The, John von Siegern was the, the DJ who was part of the band that uh, played last, a couple of nights ago here at the um, St. John's Sessions. Uh, he was um, w- was with me at that at, at that time. Anyway, so we just laid down some basic things and um, and uh, to, to be worked on later when we went back to LA. And we did that. It was and unfortunately, wow! It looks like a whole you know this medical things intruding upon this uh, collaboration actually appear, appearing because. Moritz, who had pre- had previously had a, stro- a stroke and been through, I don't think I'm being indiscreet, and I think that's not well well known, right? And um, and so he had actually had a, another bit of a health reversal, and they were supposed after we'd sent them our tracks, our our, our overdubs on what they did, uh, then it, we thought we were going to be doing uh, a. 
a show together at the um, last Atonal, right? And that couldn't happen because of this situation. So, and then, uh, so we thought, okay, well, we'll set up, we'll we'll save this for another time. But anyway, it's sitting there in the can, so to speak, and um, I'd welcome being able to get back to it. And you've also got a, a really long-awaited book, The North and South of You, mm. coming out. Can you tell me a bit about the themes that you explore mm. in that book? This comes from, you know, back in 1980 when I that first record called Possible Musics that I did with, uh, with Brian Eno, produced by Brian Eno. You know, I, it's already been said in the re-release what the real story is that I put his name on the top because I wanted to sell more records and I was a struggling downtown artist in New York and um, on unemployment so I, I, th- I thought it would be a good idea but it it served a dual purpose there were perhaps more records sold that way but I would find his LP uh, those days I don't have to explain what an LP is to this group I'm sure <laughs> I can find there in his bin and and instead of in my bin you know then the record uh, record bin and so uh, anyway the um, Fourth World was the kind of logo that I invented at that time uh, in order to, because I knew that journalists need a, a quickie, you know, a quickie bite and something that, that they can latch on to for, for print. So the Fourth World meant First World, a combination of First World technology and, and Third World tradition and somehow a way of combining those things. and. And that became a, a new thing. A lot of people latched on to it. You know, Peter Gabriel called and said, you know, and he, he invented this this festival, WOMAD festival and all that. So it became a kind of hot thing. And the New York Times was the best record of the ni- of 1980, I think. One of the best records of 1980. And uh, so... Just to underline what what that fourth world fourth world meant, and it was that combination of of uh, of spiritual technological, uh, to put it another way, and uh, so now it's kind of morphed. That idea has kind of morphed into north and south of you. Is it comes from a Cole Porter song, uh, you know, east, west, north, and the south of you. I forget the. It's called All of You. I think is the song. I thought it was clever to build something around. I mean, to, that, to use that that sort of pop thing as a title, but it it refers to the 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 similarity between the global situation of North and South, and the South being thought of as underdeveloped, while a thing like the samba is, you know, so the so that has to be thrown into like the category of underdeveloped or underdeveloped when it's much more developed than than many things of the of the northern world right so and in that how those those things that north and south the globally speaking also mapped onto the the body so that in as a waistline the waistline is the equator let's say and the north is command central where the brain and logic and language and all of those things reside and uh, and below the below uh, in the the south of the equator is where babies are born and and um, and dances are made and that kind of thing. So it became a, a a way of like extending that fourth world idea into not merely music but to a global uh, kind of analysis of where where we are. And using that as a, as again a, a kind of logo to to focus on a bunch of a bunch of things. I mean, going back to the the origins of the fourth world mm-hmm. um, term, how did you go about devising that that term and concept in a mm-hmm. in a pre internet mm-hmm. pre globalization time? I started. Who was it? Uh, Walter Di Maria. Uh, when I was in New York, this was all in the s- late seventies. I was in New York. Brian came to one of my concerts uh, where at the kitchen in New York, I think it still exists. Um, I did a, a concert called Fourth World Sketches. I mean, I'd done two records before that also. I'd done uh, a Vernal Equinox, this is kind of a smaller uh, label, and then one called Earthquake Island, in which I had gotten some money and did a recording at the 
at the Jimi Hendrix studio, the Electric Lady, and brought in some people from Weather Report and Miles Davis recording. So I thought it was, I, I kind of went a little too far in that direction. I, mean, it's, I because where I came from was was you know I I just come from studying with Stockhausen. And, you know, electronic music with, with Stockhausen in in, the, in Germany, and and uh, and so that that was pre-New York. And then when I came to New York, I I fell in with because I had met Terry Riley, the the sort of father of minimalism, and he introduced me to Lamont Young, uh, who perhaps is the the godfather of of minimal, minimalism. And I'm just giving you a little background on the on the New York of that time. It happens to be in my brain now because I just went back and kind of translated my, uh, or put down these notes I'd had in in my um, agenda, you know, like a paper. Remember, remember that, folks. Remember paper, <laughs> and in which I put all sort of personal things or career things that were going on. So that was like um, the background here is that I was coming from a grant-based. You know the trip to to Germany and all that was like from the German government. I grant grant based sort of uh, uh, headed to the university campus as a professor type, uh, you know, trajectory and uh, and which I, you know, I I didn't want to do and so th- there I was and all this uh, and all this uh, mixture going and suddenly Brian comes to the comes to this concert and and then he was working on the Talking Heads. Uh, remain in light at that time producing that and he had just come to New York for an extended stay so I, I read I wrote lots of notes down on the, you know that I uh, things that were going on and, and every I developed this three by five mentality you know three by five index cards uh, and uh, and I th- every thought that I had that or every thought that I ran into by other people or, or coming from me or would be I'd, anything. It had to fit on a 3 by 5 card. So I've got these little aphoristic, this file of, the, of, these, of these things. So it just seemed to, and there were other, you know, there were other, I think the very first time I ever thought about or that I heard that term fourth world, I think it was actually to be, completely uh, honest was in the middle uh, was some there's some photographer or ethnologist or someone who had had a, who had done a book in which that com- that somehow that combination had come to come to mind so of course I stole it you know like all good <laughs> like all good artists and um, so uh, that that's how it came to be yeah. you mentioned that particular book were there other um literary and sort of cinematic touchstones mm-hmm. that, that kind of informed this interest in the exotic? Mm-hmm. Well, certainly. Uh, it would take some digging through the rubble of my mind right now to, like, get to, the, get to them. But I remember, well, for instance, just this little vignette may not exactly answer that question, but I remember seeing there's a movie called Bye Bye Brazil, which was, I think, a... And I remember David Byrne and, and Brian and I going to that movie with our respective girlfriends at the at the time, and going for you know cachaça afterwards in you know, the Brazilian club and and all that kind of thing. They they were all you know it was all about it was all about discovery, and I have to say it was partly through the lens of what I was trying of what I was doing in in my work, right? And I had a lot of uh, I had a, a collection of uh, records on the Acora label, the French label, or these ethnic records that were all quite amazing, and um, and I introduced them to that series also. So it was from that experience. Oh yeah, also how can I forget this? Uh, Mati Klarwein, the painter who did all the, who did that like Santana Abraxas cover, and the Miles Davis Live Evil cover and things like that. And, and to say cover is to be, is to not a touch at all like where he was. I mean, he studied with Miro. He's an amazing, amazing painter, and he just happened to be a gigantic music fan. And a, and a, his record collection was in a sense a, a touchstone for me. He had like st- things that. You know that I had never, you know, heard before, never thought of before, and uh, and I I had often said that those paintings, if only I could just put into what my whole output was about, was just simply uh, 
putting into sound what those paintings were, which were like, you know, they were sexy, sometimes quasi-pornographic in a, in a kind of a, a beautiful way. Um, and uh, so they touched that, that uh, combination of, of a spiritual and, and world, kind of like world, like a, if it was a philosophy in a picture, you know, and in a sense that was, that was my uh, aspiration. And you mentioned um, in the seventies being a you know impoverished artist in mm. downtown New York. Mm. Um, your your records, you know, were often evoking far far flung corners of the world. Mm. I'm guessing that you, you didn't have an opportunity to travel to these places. It was mm. were you kind of reimagining them through the the films and the books and mm. paintings you were consuming? Certainly, yeah, and I think it. I think that's often the, a more fruitful well uh, to to drink from in a way is because it's imagination. You know, I mean that the. I have never been to Indonesia, but uh, I'm, I the the music. You know, the gamelan, especially of course when you're in, and it should be mentioned. It's not now that I'm not going to be arrested for anything. It should be mentioned that drugs were around, <laughs> you know, and and that. Uh, the work with Lamont Young was was you know this like very you know this he, and he brought the my what later became my teacher the Pandit Pranath where I started to play I gave up everything that I knew on trumpet to like try and start again playing in a new way and so that I could make some of the curves that happen in Indian music and uh, and I started singing with him with him to like learn things so I know I'm very. <laughs> tangential here so that that was the drug tangent okay and we were on we were on law hashish milkshakes that pranath that actually was something had come from india you know in india this thing in the, the classical classical india uh, bong uh, meaning marijuana grows wild by the you know by the roadside and so the there are these um they're even on the the table of these some of these classical Indian mini, miniatures. You'll see like a little round confections on the table, which are are called ladu, which are mixtures of like almond paste and and marijuana. So that played a part in what we were doing. I don't think we anybody could imagine I would be we would be playing like speaking of the concerts with Lamont for four hours straight, just trying to get a perfect fifth, perfect, right? And uh, because what happened at that time, I mean, then what happened in that state was that you would be hearing overtones that you never heard before, if you even knew what overtones were. You know, this is not something that comes out of an academic music background that you don't, you're not. So that was a kind of introduction to a silvery world, I call. I always call it, the where that things are happening above, in another world, above the fundamental of the of the tones. And that's not simply a drug, it's not a drug phenomenon, it's something that the loosening of sense, senses um, allowed to be, to be heard. The reality of it is, is that, it's, that it's there. And that was extraordinarily important uh, for me. And... Um, all those things together, right? We was, I was in I was in India. I mean, back to your original premise, well, that it might be better to dream about things than to than to have actually experience them. But I did do some of that experiencing too, and that was a, that was super important. Although it may not have been in terms of the actual like how the things I went for taste-wise were. I mean, I loved Miles Davis and I loved Gil Evans and I loved all the lushness of those harmonies and that were, you know, like post-Ravel, uh, let's say. Uh, and so that that's in that, the answer to that question is all, it's the whole, it's the whole ball in a way. You can decode that. I want to sort of delve a bit further into those sort of formative experiences with, you know, Lamont Young and Terry Riley. First, I wanted to ask more generally about cultural appropriation um, mm. because m many people, myself included, um, have struggled to sort of wrap my head around the subtleties and complexities of what's okay and what's not okay. And it's mm. something that you've always seemed to to sort of handle um, in, a, in a very respectful way. Mm. Um, how have you approached that mm. subject in the past? Well, the, to start with, I had a base in which, like, after after I got the raga 
uh, experience, which was for me mild. I didn't go into like being, you know, a virtuoso on the trumpet, you know, and, and I, I was too old to start doing that. I should have been born, and I should have been doing it since I was 12 years old if I were, if I were going to become the elephant that dances, you know. I felt that I had a, a, a kind of a, a base, a strong base. It wasn't just like picking this and picking that without having a, a deep, a deeper understanding of another culture, let's say. So the idea of appropriation in the, in the sense of, uh, it, I think that depends upon, and I'm jumping ahead now thinking of the kinds of electronic means that there are to like facilitate cultural appropriation. I mean, it would be, in a sense, it's it's like completely impossible to avoid. I mean, it was like the the coming world. I mean, it was to say fourth world. It was also in a way, it was to say this is where it's going and not to like hit hard on the prophetic part of it or anything like that, but just like, for anyone who attempts to like know what's going on in the world and in your own world and the rest of the world, it's inevitable. And that that connection with the rest of the world was inevitable also. And so I, you could say that it was, you know, that there was a, a understanding of that. I mean, as in once again, I, I yield to the, you know, to Mati Klarwein and and his you know the, his music his record collection and, and the paintings and all that they showed that I remember seeing a, a cover one of the paintings that was um, and I have three three records of the records early records have those some of his painting on it but that was I just thought this is it that's what I want that's what I want to do you know I want to like make that I want to make something that's 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 again sexy and beautiful and deep, you know. So cultural collision is in, inevitable, and it was, uh, it's a question of where, you know, what kind of credentials you have to do it. I mean, do you need credentials? I mean, it's you, you know, you, you've got all the world at your fingertips with, their, with your laptop and, and all the possible, not all, but many ways of like, uh, of, uh, incorporating those things into music. I mean, it's so everything is so easy in a way that if there's a real danger of well, is it shall I? I'm sort of lapsing into warning, you know. But there, uh, there is no the cat's out of the bag, right? I mean, there's no sense in trying to to like isolate this phenomenon, and 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 so I, I embrace it and carry it further. At the same time. I go backwards. I did a record called Fasanoma with Ry Cooter producing. It was all acoustic, and it it was in Santa Barbara in a church in the studio. And this this church was the studio, and it was like, like religiously analog. <laughs> you know, it was like two inch tape, and, and Kavi Alexander, the the engineer, the Indian engineer, wouldn't even make a digital copy for fear that. Bits would like flow back, flow back through the the you know the wires somehow and corrupt the the analog uh, uh, stuff. So that you know I've touched both sides and uh, touched base with that. Let's say at the same time there are lots of new things around now that are cost maybe uh, ten pounds. Let's say for that are that do things that that do things that Stockhausen would require two floors of the West German radio to accomplish. There's such a kind of open field of things to do that it almost creates stasis, you know. Either you get into it and you and you do something and it's a hit and you get out fast or let's say or you're pushed out fast because there's the next person there ready to do the same thing because they have the same technological savvy and the same technological means to make that happen. And I imagine that happens in the electronic world rather quickly. You know, fashion, who has the, the hottest name and all that kind of thing. So, so from my point of view, I think of what I do is still, I'm still working as a classical artist in a way. And um, it's just that the, I'm, I'm not one who closes his eyes and ears to uh, all of the possibilities and I try to put it in some form which is uh, uh, not something that any someone else can do you know and taking things 
back. You, you grew up in Memphis. Mm-hmm. What are your recollections of, of childhood? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's, it's deep there, for sure. There's a question. I, mean, I always think that um, I, I'm very um, blessed to have been born in Memphis rather than in, you know, Idaho or, or someplace or Chicago or even Chicago because there was a crossing. You talk about crossing of cultures and where does that come from? I was in, uh, you know, I, I was, was uh, the era of segregation was still present. So I was, you know, I'm, I, I was introduced to it from that, you know, sort of looking across the divide, the racial divide uh, point of view uh, on my, uh, parked on my street might have been Johnny Cash's beat up stretch limo. Uh, and at the same time, I, I was around like the there was a um, an African American guy, Henry Barnes, who was a, a a kind of helper for my family and 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 very trusted and you know would take my my older brother and sister to school on a bike and things like that and I remember his taking me out to uh, like the, you know the word joint <laughs> you know like Akata, Mississippi. Mississippi type place that's that's made of of RC cola signs and you know nailed nailed together on a wooden frame you know and that that kind of thing. Well, he took me out to this proto juke joint in the, in the outskirts of Memphis someplace, and it's one of the big sound experiences I ever had. Although I cannot, like all I can do is speaking of like, is it better to imagine or better to be? I cannot imagine what that exactly, I can't quite recreate it in my mind other than to say that it's probably like the very earliest electronic instrument thing going on, like maybe the very first or the earliest uh, amplifiers and guitars and things like that. Just, it was so astounding to, to me. And I, and I you know, I, I'm I, as I speak about it, I'm still like one of those cartoons where the your head is going, right? So I, I I'm still shaking. I'm still uh, blown away by it, and and it would be, you know, I could spend a lifetime just, re, you know, trying to mine what that, you know, imagine what that that was, and and to back to this kind of the crossing of cultures thing. I know. I thought to myself later after after I left, you really never know your place if you grow up in a small, even a small town in here. You don't really know what it is until you leave and you look back on it again. And so from those sort of early formative years in, in Memphis, you you went to study at the Eastman School of Music in, mm-hmm. in Rochester. Mm-hmm. Is that where you sort of um, worked on your, your sort of trumpet playing? Yeah. Well, I was, my, actually, my dad had a cornet around the house, you know, the, the smaller version of the, uh, the trumpet, and he had a silver cornet around the house that he had played in the Georgia Tech band when he had gone to school there. And um, <clears throat> so I started playing in high school. And yes, yeah, certainly, I, then I started to study orchestral trumpet and that kind of thing, which you do at a conservatory. And and that's you were still at Eastman when you appeared on Terry Riley's In C, obviously a um, no, uh, actually not. You weren't. No, no. That you had was, left. Um, r- r- um. Yeah, that was much, much later. Here's, here's yeah. the, the quickie progression was from school, marriage, married, married a pianist, um, army. I went to the army band for three years to escape being drafted, living in Washington, D.C., getting the grant to go to Germany to st- study with Stockhausen back from Germany to the a grant, a Rockefeller grant at the State University of New York in, in Buffalo. And then that was in a group of, uh, the premise there was musicians who were both composers and performers. So I fit that category and and uh, that's when, and Terry, uh, Terry Riley uh, came up as a, um, as one of the fellows of this, uh, of this thing. Also, David Behrman, who's a composer, musician, he was a producer for this uh, uh, Music of Our Time, I think it was called, series for Columbia, and he was there. So then that's how the, the NC happened. My, my wife is the pulse, and <laughs> the bung, 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 pulse in, in, in that recording. So that's where I met Terry, and then led from Terry to New York, Lamont, 
tell me a bit about NC and and uh, your role in that um, it it being mm. such a landmark uh, mm. minimalist recording. My my role was simply uh, I mean coming into contact with Terry was uh, I came back from from Europe uh, kind of still filled in there even though I thought I was doing interesting things there and not simply like being a little a little Carlines. Stockhausen, um, a, a, Terry mentioned, he said something, we were at a, at a party or something, and said something about being or neurotic, like ne- that European music was neuro- neurotic. I was mean, thinking about the 12 tone, the Schoenberg, Berg, Weber, and all that, and, and up to Stockhausen. And it really uh, rang a bell. It was one of the bell ringers for me. And I thought, hmm. And and that is that is really the the soil of that American music movement, which then you know Terry was Steve Wright came out of Terry, not well known that that's the fact, but and and also one could say that Terry came out of out of Lamont, and so that that whole sort of American minimalist thing, which kind of took over for a while and perhaps still reigns in the at least in some quotation mark classical. Vein is um, that was my my contact with it was that and and it was with that that I did and also this was the moment of uh, actually when I was in Washington I was teaching for one year at the Ameri- at American University and this and this person came through who was like who had the na- name Moog <laughs> he came through and was espousing this new this new uh, instrument. An oscillator, actually, that in which one volt equalled one octave. You know, like sort of making the first sort of uh, connection between uh, music and 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 technology. You know, electronics. And I have, I still have like a letter from the the director of the uh, of the the university saying, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Bob Moog has come, or Robert Moog has come by and w- and would like to demonstrate so and so and so and so, right? And so. <laughs> so it was just, you know, I I go back. That was about what that was when I was still in in Washington before I went to to the to before I'd gone, gone to Germany actually, and uh, and so then come back and then uh, you know to come back from that and then to meet Terry and then go New York and meet Lamont and then at the same time be like enchanted with tranced with uh, with what Miles was Miles Davis was doing at that time in in. For instance, on the corner, that record was like a total touchstone, another big touchstone for me. So I was playing with a wah wah pedal and you know d- d- that doing that kind of thing. And, and uh, so the uh, I, I, while I was still there at the uh, at the university, the State University of New York at Buffalo, and this foundation in this uh, they call it a creative associate role. Yeah, I guess it was a studio in the basement with Moog equipment, and uh, I know if you if you actually were writing this down, you might find that there's a hole here someplace. But but the point is that I had these eight oscillators, and that I went in and I made a piece that uh, called Solid State, that was uh, a kind of uh, big. The quick idea is that if you fill a room with like these two sets of oscillators of of eight. Eight oscillators were tuned in perfect fifths, right? So you got, and so it's like a very uh, harmonic, very. It's not not a grading sound at all. I mean, it's like it's a very harmonic sound. But but I had these filters, the and that was part of the Moog advance was that you you know you didn't have to you didn't have to sit there and turn a dial. It could the filters could be driven by voltage. So in other words, you could have a sequence of filters. I mean, uh, a filtering. Which I did on this on these this sort of big block of sound. So I set all the dials at zero for the first thing. So it's all just this big static room filled with with lots of overtones and lots of sound. And so then you start this, and the sequencer is running right, and it's all but it's all running so that all the positions are at the same level. So then you start to change one, and then you, and it's and then it makes a little bump in the spectrum. Then you change another, and then you start start looking at it as if it's a graphic equalizer, and then you you make different kinds of um, different shapes, different whole different kinds of holes in this in this massive thing. So I started actually presenting that 
not as music, but as a sound sculpture. And uh, that it was a good way to get beyond the predisposition to like, how would you know, judge that, and to, you know, for an art or a music uh, crowd to judge that. So, so during that period, I did things at, at various uh, uh, museums. And that was before I went to, what was that before I went to New York? Yeah, it was a while, sort of a while. I was still in communication with New York. And Terry was in a lot, was, uh, whose loft I eventually took over in New York when I moved there he said he I brought in I, I was thinking so actually the, well, the first thing I did was this uh, it doesn't make much sense unless you know the piece but but his his comment was well it sounds like Philip Glass or it sounds like it sounds like Steve Reich you know and that was because I had th- things going like you know that kind of motoric motoric feeling and I think it was then I went back and just changed it so that it was all it was all these these subtle changes in the in the um, in the spectrum instead of more obvious kinds of things. So that that really was the key to it of making this piece. And and actually, the, you know, Matthew Jones at Warp wants to do this uh, wants to release this piece called Solid State as a kind of a proto. It actually is a still very immersive experience and would be uh, you know the bigger space. The better. I, I've been. I've kind of resisted in a way of being released on a record because I think I'm not sure. I, I wasn't sure if it's not like really in a big space and where you can kind of like lie on the floor and feel things and all that. I wasn't sure how how effective it would be. But Matthew was enthusiastic about it, and uh, I yield to <laughs> to doing that sometime soon. Before your experiences with Terry Riley and, and Lamont Young, as you've mentioned, you you studied under Stockhausen in Cologne. Mm-hmm. What was what was Karl Hans Stockhausen like as a person? Mm-hmm. Well, he was German, but he was young German, and you know, a product of the the war in a way still. But I think it was the first real kind of musical artist that I had contact with. You know, someone whose life was that. You don't get that in America. You don't run it because everybody's having to like do five or six things in order to stay alive. You know, they're a professor, uh, but they're not completely invested in it. It's like, I'm an artist, this is what I do. And that's the, you know, the, the, the joy of the underwriting experience that happens in, in Europe, uh, which can be disastrous, but, all, but who cares if you've got things that come out of it that are, that are good. And, uh, uh, by disastrous, I mean that you can support things that don't need supporting, you know, and let them grow, they let them grow where they capitalist system they would die of their own, you know, lack of interest. Let's say, but uh, anyway, so that my wife is there, you know, as I said, she's a pianist, so she started playing, you know, Stockhausen and and uh, doing recitals and and things like that. It changed her changed her life uh, a bit too. So yeah, I, th- I thought he was a, an amazing guy. And and part of that experience, there were a lot of European, other me- European musicians were brought through. It was like a kind of Cologne course for new music. So instrumentalists, the famous instrumentalists, avant-garde instrumentalists of the day and composers of the day would sort of uh, come around like Luciano Berrio, he brought in like uh, his wife Kathy Berberian was a, a a great singer, and uh, he brought in things like uh, you know he'd sort of collage things like uh, a Italian kind of radio uh, almost soap opera or something. He'd put that in the middle of the middle of something. So I what I did was uh, the interesting. There's a beautiful piece uh, in Schoenberg's Five Pieces for Orchestra called Zomer Morgen am See, Summer Morning by the Sea. And it's the first one that in which they, they call what they call Klangfarben melody, meaning melody of timbre, melody of color as opposed to melody of pitch. And that it's sort of like, so the orchestration was so that it was like, it was almost like one chord again, and referring, you know, like, like the solid state, right? it was almost one chord which moved from seamlessly from like here's the violin and then suddenly it's no longer the violin on that note but the flute playing softly or the this or that you know so and it kind of pulsed in a way so that to me that was of the real landmarks and I often do that I often just don't I'm not I'm not biting the whole cookie I'll find something that's like a piece 
and I'll listen to it over and over and over, and that'll be my thing. So in fact, that there's a relation. So anyway, the piece that I did for the final piece that I did for Stockhausen was that I that I sampled, quote unquote, meaning in rea in reality, I would took I took. Uh, bits of that score of that score of the um, the Schoenberg score, and I had uh, uh, Stockhausen's engineer, uh, this Dutch guy, Jaap Spick. He made these little. I had this idea of like doing uh, of having everybody playing softly on stage with contact microphones, and they were instructions where they play as softly as possible so they couldn't actually be heard unless their unless the output of their contact microphone was brought forth. So he made these little these little mixers with like little switch like maybe five or ten well were, there were three of them five each so there were, you had this like little mixer in which you we were touching this little button that brings forth whatever that is being done on that particular microphone so it was like a chance to and they a chance to sort of pull forward what you could or the shape that was being made was by chance, you know, like I, I actually used John Cage's, you know, kind of chance methods of like what I did. And so in other words, a graph, it was a graphic score for the electronics and a, and the real, and then, the, but the real notes being played were, were derived from this uh, Stockhausen piece. These are interviews sometimes good for me because I just forget about stuff like this and I forget about the connections that they have to what I, you know, to what I did, uh, you know. I wanted to ask you about um, your history with with Brian Eno. Mm. I guess as a as a starting point, I wanted to to um, sort of dive into your collaboration on Fourth World Volume One, Possible Musics. Mm. Did you have a sense at the time when you were recording that that there was you were doing something groundbreaking? Well, what was groundbreaking about it was the association with the pop with the pop producer. And, and the pop world, the things that were being done had already been done in the previous records. And Brian certainly had had good ideas in terms of uh, his uh, studio savvy. And, you know, the way he, that was how he got his street cred was for asking those sort of art school questions about what to do in the studio. Like, what happens if I do this? You know, what happens if I turn this knob instead of turning that knob? Breaking through the orthodoxy of studio, right, and with capital capital letters. So he had some. He had certainly had some good ideas, and and I was. Um, but as far as I mean, I'm I resist, and I am resisting actively now the uh, the sort of wedding of our names on an equal level with that, because as I said, I, I had as I said earlier, I had already brought the musical part of the. I'd already had two records that were there and so um and i as i said i put the i I'd, i remember at launch telling brian well look i i i think it's it's fine if you just put your name after mine at, at the top instead of being you know just produced by which actually would have been more accurate so i've spent let's see how many 30 30 years trying to um make that distinction between uh what was there uh, and um and what Brian added to it, and because it's even now, I, I have to say, like there's a you know in the reviews of the recently re-released Possible Musics, they printed a long interview, almost verbatim, in which uh, I I talk about uh, pretty much what I just said, like right? trying to, to give Brian his due and at the same time give myself my due, you know, and it's about the world of music criticism and about uh, how there there's this stratification of like uh, of classical and and pop i mean anything that's cla right now and a couple of there's a pitchfork interview of that uh, i mean a review of that record and in, in which uh, and another aaron aaron lightco i think his name is something uh, do you happen to know, know that name aaron yeah yes and uh, and he had said that he had pointed out that that um that there was another kind of thing that that I, I was I was doing that didn't relate at all to the even eighth notes guys, you know, the taka 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 the the Philip Glass and and uh, and Steve Reich sort of sort of thing, but that is what you know. There was this 
schism between cl classical and, and, and pop reviewers, but the sort of marker, the, the indicator for like classical was in a sense this, this constancy, like sort of as if, you took, as if you took Mozart and extracted the MIDI information from, from, from a Mozart piece and, and, just add, and just had it driving a pentatonic scale, you know, pentatonic atmosphere, that it just it still had to have that kind of motoric thing going for it to be called classical, you know, that it's an easy, easier sell to the, to the New York Times audience who would like go to a, a, a concert and what they would be expecting as a, you know, versus the kind of uh, urban, sexy, electronics mixture that would, that would be with a Miles Davis concert, let's say that that would be, so I actually wrote about when I, I wrote several, every time I did a record, I, I wrote these little essays that I thought were, would try and, and just say what I thought about those distinctions. And that, so I called Miles Davis would be more classical in a, in a larger frame of, that is to say, if you want to say that the world is made up of both north and south, below the waist and above the waist. Then you would call Miles what Miles Davis does much more classical in this in a, in a fourth world, you know, larger larger dimension sense than than you'd call the the Philip Glass uh, Steve Reich thing. You'd call that that a, a very uh, that would be very white and very occidental, right? And uh, and whereas Miles was translating what had the kinds of influences that were there. From blues and from Africa originally, and from the electronics. I mean, you know, this, that guitar player uh, just had this like bunch of effects on a table. With every guitar singer there followed the story, sort of digested that and tried to. Now it can all be had in a box, you know, one one box, but. Um, the essay was about like what is really what's classical and what's not, right? So I thought Miles qualified for a fourth world type classical as opposed to this other thing. And we've we've sort of touched on it already, but your your first album, Vernal Equinox, obviously resonated with a lot of people, including Brian, and it obviously fed into his. Um, my Life in the Bush of Ghosts album with David Byrne. Mm. You were slated to collaborate on on the album, but it didn't it didn't work out. Is that right? Right. They had asked me. Uh, David, David had uh, come back from a concert with the Heads, Talking Heads. Uh, we we hung out. We were very social together. Right. We had girlfriends and going to movies, and I introduced them to Walter D. Maria, the Earth artist, and other and and Lamont Young. Yeah, and I took them took them by to meet Lamont and. All that, so we were quite buds. So yes, yeah, so then he came back one day from from a concert in New Jersey, and he said something. I said like, uh, uh, actually, Brian related to me that David had said to him that he wanted to do something else. That he thought the audience he was playing to, that the heads were playing to, was not something interesting to him anymore. They proposed to me that that we do this record uh, together, which had something to, which was going to be. Would go out to California and um, and rent a house and get some equipment in and uh, and and just try to create something which was um, actually at, the, at that moment uh, the this record by the residents uh, called Eskimo was uh, was outlined a kind of a, 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 a fake the premise was a, 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 to fake a, a, a tribal a fake a another culture right and. Uh, so that was a, that was the original uh, one of the original ideas thrown out about it, and uh, so after we'd finished, you know, we'd, we were working on possible working on what became possible musics in the studio, and David would drop by and offer to do things, and and, and if we, if we wanted him to do anything on the record, and uh, if I had said yes, it probably would have been my life in the bush of ghosts <laughs> beginning, but. Uh, I didn't. I was headed someplace else, um, and so the um, so I uh, it 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 kind of just withered on the vine because they went out to L.A. That talking about beginning in New York, right? They went out to L.A. and and started work on the record, but no more than ten days after finishing Possible Musics. So I think if you took the 
objectively speaking, if you took both of their previous records, revealed the connection that we had and what I and and my from that they knew and all that and that that um, you'd see a very distinct kind of uh, borrowing, I wanted to use a uh, polite word, and, um, and are sometimes I've been thinking of the world a style template, where you have a template that you can, that you that you can fill with a certain with certain things, right? And of course, their template went towards other things than you know they more pop oriented and had more more uh, had a, a beer budget and all that kind of thing. But and I was the the kind of. Uh, I basically just felt like a, I, after I'd heard one thing that they had done with Ums Kalsum and a kind of, um, to me, uh, silly sort of African quote-unquote beat from Talking Heads, a la Talking Heads, I said, this is not what I'm interested in. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not into doing like a, the layer cake thing where you can separate this and separate that and, and that I was about trying to create a fourth world music which was integrated and which was in which the granules were mixed up in a blender and you know hopefully hopefully came out with something which was not so easily definable uh, as this comes from here and this comes from there and and I think they took that um, that uh, because I was indigent at the time on unemployment and and uh, not much money coming out of the possible musics uh, uh, pot uh, they kind of uh, I think their business situation the partners in business um, sire records for for the talking heads and and um, and eg records for Brian they had they had you know all the business people probably said okay well let let's let just let this ride you know he already said no to you so why make any why why do you want to create problems let's just let's just let's just go with this and later, only after, actually, when I say later, maybe 30 years later, I could just recently have gone through the, I've gone through the, um, the diary that I kept, the agenda that I kept in which I wrote down things, and I, and I started putting these pieces together, and I thought, wow, what a fool I was, and, and how I was disrespected by, by not having a return from them that's that would have been given to an artist like uh Ravi Shankar or a you know or a Rai Cooter or someone who had a who would have a a phalanx of 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 uh lawyers and and you know a team behind them they would have said something like well okay I'm sorry you know when I said no to the I said this is you know not what I was where I was going they're they're polite and the Certainly expected replied that would have been given it by anyone in that in that uh, in that time and in with those conditions would have said, oh well, you know let's why, why don't you come out we'll fly you out and and we'll spend a couple of days in the studio and see if we can work something out, but they didn't say that and um, those days it was pre-email okay it was like letters and <laughs> packages with cassettes in them, and I in a sense had already. Had had I, was, I felt the whole situation had become sort of toxic to me because they were taking something that was my developed my development and uh, and putting it with something else. But I had being so kind of innocent, really. Even though I was old, I was older. Like David was twenty eight, Brian was thirty four, I was forty three at that time, and it was because of the because of being part of these uh, uh, part of the. Academic, you know, the, as I said, a kind of grant-based life um, instead of a professional pop situation. You know, it put me in a different mindset, and uh, and I just we we continued to hang out and have dinners, and just occasionally I would bring up something like, like uh, you know, I'd, I'd I'd bring up something with Brian, and say you know you know this, this very much seems to be like kind of co-opting of of my you know of my work, and but it wouldn't be somehow I you know I just it would just go on and I and I as I said I was well there in a way these other things were being dangled in front of me and like the continued work like we did another we did uh, two more records together uh, with Brian producing and um, and so 
that's the very long answer to the my life in the bush of ghost uh, connection. In, in terms of vernal equinox, it can actually be it's quite a hard record to buy in mm. a physical format. Now, do you think it would be? Would you like to see it sort of reissued mm. or sort of um, presented to a new a new generation? Mm. Well, I, I sure. I mean, it's not. There are lots of there are a couple of things on it that I think are really good. A lot of it is, uh, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't be. I don't care about it staying around, you know, just as a kind of historical document in a way of like what was going on at that time. If you know that that would be that would be the reason for it. The other one, uh, the earthquake island, would probably be more. Um, I cer- there's certainly more going on there, even though I'm slightly embarrassed by the <clears throat> by my attempt to become weather report and and <laughs> to not be myself. In, in terms of your general approach to albums, you've, you've always, or it seems like you've always approached it as like a very a full package. There's the music, there's often your detailed liner notes or essays, and mm-hmm. also the artwork, which is what I, I wanted to ask you about mm-hmm. specifically. The art, album covers have always been really evocative or alluring. And mm-hmm. how much of a, a role have you have you had it um, traditionally in um, sort of overseeing the, the design mm-hmm. process? Mm-hmm. Well, I've always been, you know, on top of it, you know, that's not, no one has forced me to do something. Uh, and if you, the three records that I did, let's see, the Not Possible Musics, but um, the next one, Dream Theory in Malaya, and then Akadabari Java, and then later on, Power Spot. Yeah, Power Spot, that's one that, uh-huh, there's a story there that I haven't thought about, Power Spot. That was the last connection with Brian as a producer, and that was with Dan Lanois also, who, Daniel Lanois, who was also, uh, who was also, it was his studio in which we did these, in Canada, in Toronto, where we did these things, like those two follow-up records to uh, to the, the, the three that are on, e.g., the Possible Musics and Dream Theory, Malay and Akadar Barjava. The covers, then, so those covers, uh, the last two I mentioned are are Mati Klarwan paintings that they that he offered, uh, you know, allowed me to allowed me to use. We became really close friends, and but he, yeah, it's been uh, I can't think of one in which I didn't have any any role in, except maybe the Warner Brothers. Yeah, well, I could have the the dress the dressing for pleasure. You know, I always had, I, 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 you know, I was under, <laughs> I was under jury. I mean, that was like under the, another spell of like, oh, big label. That was right after the the record we started talking about, City Works of Fiction, which was uh, which was Brian's imprint label, uh, distributed by Warner Brothers, uh, All Saints. And that's the catalog that Matthew Jones uh, uh, that was uh, responsible for re-releasing on Warp. So that one had, uh, we're back on, and we're still on covers, or maybe we've done enough on covers. Well, I just I wanted to just briefly yeah. touch on the Aka uh-huh. um, Dabari Java uh-huh. sleeve from, from Mati, and that feels to really nicely, like visually, sum up um, what we were talking about earlier in terms yeah. of um, like an imagined right. far off land, or, right. you know, it, yeah. it, it just really seems quite quite um, evocative in that respect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, one, one, of, yeah, one thing, I just wanted to mention the, uh, the, the event surrounding the, uh, the one, the thing that was looking out the window and, and remember, that I had not actually th- thought about, and that is the, that, that last connection with Brian was on Power Spot, which a lot of people really liked that record. And um, it was done, here we were. Brian, what were you doing? Well, we, as I said, we maintained friendship, you know, a, a strong friendship. I, I'm godfather to Brian's daughter, okay? So, I mean, it's like, it's a, it's a complicated relationship. Or, or uh, So, I remember we were walking through the park and um, I'd come to Amsterdam for something. And, um, and Brian said, all right, I, I, we were, the talk was about what is a producer? Because you know, in in your when you're a composer and you you know you're of the university variety, what is a producer? You know, I mean, you're a composer. You're a composer. You're responsible for if this French horn thing is supposed to be there, it's supposed to be there, right? It's not to be. There's no second layer of like, you know, let's let's kill that, let's bring this forth, and all that, as in you know production, which exists of course in classical 
classical production also. But anyway, that was the, the idea for that for Power Spot was that we were going to go to, we were going to do this record, uh, this last record at Grand Avenue Studio, the the Lenoir Brothers Studio, and and. And uh, we were going to. I said, "Okay, I'm going to let the producer take over. I'm going to let the let the let's let's let this producer idea come to the more to the fore." And um, and so that was sort of the premise of that of that record, which, as I said, has some really nice things on it. <laughs> 